Welcome to Revelation Ancient Prophecy. This series is a detailed, in-depth study of the book of Revelation. You will discover just how relevant to our day the prophecies of Revelation really are. Here is your presenter, Pastor Baron Neustraten. Well, good evening and uh, again, wonderful that uh, we have your company as we continue to study the book of Revelation and in fact also delve in the book of Daniel because it plays such a big role. And before we start, can I invite you just to bow your heads as we seek the blessing of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity again to study your word. And Lord, as we look at the marvelous books that uh, you have entrusted to us, help us to understand it, help us to internalize it, and then I pray help us to share it with others. In Jesus' precious name, amen. A roadmap indeed. We're into the trumpets here. The last trumpet, which is the seventh trumpet, has not sounded yet. So technically, we still are more or less in the sixth trumpet. Although, if you look at the sixth trumpet, it uh, is a conclusion of the punishment on the enemies of God's people, which was Byzantium Rome, which in chapter 9 of the book of Revelation uh, is described, receives the chastising and the punishment and the judgment through the Ottoman. Constantinople fell on the 16th of May, 1453. The other date, and I think it'd be worthwhile mentioning that we got from this seventh trumpet, this, I'm sorry, this sixth trumpet, is this. It was the 11th of August of 1840. You remember the four angels near the river Euphrates. And uh, there was an entity prepared that would, uh, that would last for an hour, a day, uh, a month, and a year, 391 years and 15 days. And then it would be an absolute power, a power that would have folded and come to an end, to a conclusion. Well, the 11th of August, 1840, was recognized by many, many biblical students. They, uh, they recognized the value also of this prediction. And le let me say this as well. It is around this time that you have a movement which is called the Advent Movement. Now, it's not the Adventist, uh, Seven Days Adventist Church. This is an Advent Movement, you see. Uh, and many denominations were a part of it. Hundreds of thousands of people. And when that last date came through, the 11th of August, 1840, as the culmination of the power of the Ottoman Empire coming to an end, oh, that was a tremendous impetus to the Advent movement. They could see that. The interesting thing for us here and now today is that we are looking at a chronology. A chronology that uh, we have moved into. And this is important that you remember that, particularly with what we dealt with, and we'll just refresh our memories a little bit, particularly when we look at, when we look at the actual uh, vision there in chapter 10, as recorded in the uh, book of Revelation. We have a parathetical uh, prophecies, and uh, chapter 10 is one of them. Remember the mighty angel, one foot on the land, one foot on the sea? Um, the mighty angel with the little book. Now, the, uh, the emphasis is on the little book. It's just a tiny scroll. 
it compelled us to go to the book of Daniel because if we want to find what that little book might be, we would have to go into the Old Testament. And there in the book of Daniel at the 12th chapter is it so clearly spelled out. The angel Gabriel there uh, advises Daniel who wants to understand the vision, but he has a struggle with the time prophecy. He can't get his mind around that. And he never understood it, though he faithfully recorded it. The angel said to Daniel, but you, Daniel, you, Daniel, shut up the words and what? Yes, seal the book. The book is sealed. It's a portion of the book of Daniel that is sealed. Until the time of the end, and we looked at that particular expression that it gets in the Hebrew, which is a very specific expression you will only find in the book of Daniel. It is a little time, a period of time before the end of time. It's not the same thing as the end of time. It is a period before that. And you can deduct from the book of Daniel, where it's mentioned about five times, that this ultimately culminates, begins at 1798, which happens to be uh, the end of the 1260 years of persecution through the, uh, the, the, the Church of the Middle Ages. 1798. We are around about this time. And it's important to recognize. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Now, to and fro, uh, going to and fro means examining, searching, scripture. Knowledge, knowledge of what? Science, yes, sure. <laughs> that happens to be true. Science did increase. But the primary embed of this statement that you're looking at is really a knowledge of the book of Daniel. So round about 1795 and afterwards, we should come into a better understanding, an examination, a searching for the meanings of some of those prophecies, particularly the time prophecy that is given here. The time prophecy of the 2,300 days, which we know to be years. Now, when we do that, we consider what the angel said to him. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. It is a, a very interesting statement. In the Hebrew, the word nitztak comes from the word uh, tzedak, which means holiness, uh, it means cleansing, it means vindicating. It applied to the most holy place. It applied always to a, the cleansing of the sanctuary, as far as the Jews were concerned, was a cleansing act that could only find place after God had judged his justice to be correct and the sinner was forgiven already in the courtyard, but the record of the sins of the sinner is to be done away. Let me explain something. People believe, and rightfully so, that God forgives. He does. Oh, he does. If he didn't, I wouldn't be here. And, and, and neither would you. What's the point? So there is forgiveness. And yes, there are statements where God says, I, I, I put your sins away as far as the east is from the west. What an expression. 
and uh, I, I put it in the depths of the oceans. That's what God said. In the depths of the oceans. And B Billy Graham, commenting on that statement, always used to say that God would put a big sign there. No fishing allowed. So it's rather interesting when you think of that. But here it is. God forgives. The sinner who came into the courtyard was forgiven. The courtyard is the world. You are forgiven here. But then the priest through the blood or a bit of the meat went into the holy place and symbolically transferred the record of your sins into the holy place. It didn't belong there, but that's where he put it. And then once a year in the Jewish religious festivals, the most solemn day of their religious calendar was the tenth day of the seventh month, which we know as the Yom Kippur, which means the Day of Atonement. Uh, the word, the verb Kippur really means, uh, comes from the verb kafar, that means to cover. So there is a covering. What is covered? Well, your sins are covered. But the record of the sins have to leave the sanctuary and the cleansing of the taking away of those recorded sin was the cleansing of the sanctuary. So the sanctuary is cleansed from the records of, notice, the forgiven sins, who remained forgiven. And that was the important part. And in order for God to, to be vindicated and justified to do that, to cleanse the sanctuary, to cleanse away the records of your sin, there had to be an investigation. Orthodox Jews still today have a particular greeting on the Day of Atonement. And they say to each other this, I hope that your name has been retained in the Book of Life. Because on that day, to them, Either your name gets blotted out of the book of life, which means you're lost, or the records of your sins get blotted out, and so your name retains, is retained in the book of life. Can you see that? And so that is what it is about. It is a judgment, and, and they were aware of that, and we're going to talk about that. Because if you don't understand that, then the book of Revelation doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Not really. Interesting, the historical data. Wonderful. I mean, very convicting that that book is inspired. No doubt about it. But it is not sufficient just to know the, those details. We need to understand the reason for the actions that God has taken. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at that. Once a year. Once a year, the priest would go into the most holy place. The most holy place. Only once a year. That is the only time he could go there. No high priest would dare to go outside the prescribed day. In the Ark of the Covenant, you understand that in the most holy place you have the Ark of the Covenant. Now you would know perhaps that inside the Ark of the Covenant were the two tablets of stone. You remember that from Moses, you know, the days of Moses, when they, in, in the book of Exodus, when God wrote with his own finger the law on the tablets of stone, well, they were placed inside the Ark. Now, you see, that is a reminder. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. 
The covenant is obey and live. The problem was, the problem was that the children of Israel at the time at Mount Sinai, when, when the, these tablets were delivered to them and spoken, the, the context spoken, the, 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 the commandments spoken by God, they said to Moses, could you please ask God to, to stop speaking because the voice thundered and they were so afraid. Tell God to tell you and whatever it is, we will do it. And that was the first covenant that they broke because a few weeks later they were dancing around the golden calf. The first covenant failed because we uh, and they neither could keep any of the commandments of God perfectly. We can't. So we need a new covenant and the new covenant is when God writes his law on our hearts. It's just a bit of theology that I think needs to be, needs to be proclaimed here. God helps us, all his biddings, as somebody said so eloquently, all his biddings are his enablings. God asks nothing of us that he couldn't help us to perform, to fulfill. And so the second covenant is really the same, obedience and live, but he will help you to obey. And we'll talk about that maybe another time a bit more extensively. What is fascinating is that the priest, the high priest, in an attire of simplicity, would get into the most holy place and he would, uh, he would administer blood. And we're going to talk about what type of blood it really was and where it came from, because that's important. What does it mean that the sanctuary shall be cleansed? As I said to you, it means that the records of your sins that are forgiven already will be moved out of the sanctuary and moved completely out of the equation. Cleansed, vindicated, justified. It's a judgment. The concept, and that was the concept of the Jews, the concept is that there is a judgment finding place. God's mercy that forgives, God's justice that he can forgive. The law cannot be changed. Now the mighty angel with the little book, remember, one foot on the sea, one foot on the land, and, uh, and all the things that are in it, and there were that there should be delay no longer. Remember that statement, the angel there, might, who is actually Christ? Uh, we looked at the word, the Greek word chronos, which really means time. And we, we, we discovered it doesn't mean that this is the end of time. No, no, no. This means, and we have correctly interpreted this, and most scholars do, no more time prophecy. No more prophecy that you can... Uh, give a date to. This is it. The last date of prophetic utterances is the one that we are after. After that, no more time setting. But the commission that comes, as you will see in a minute, will tell you that the angel, the mighty angel, that is Christ himself as the angel, does not say that time has finished because he gives the commission to John who personifies the people at that time. The after the time of the end, correct? And so this is what's happening here. It's the culmination of the 2,300 years. That is the time prophecy that the angel is mentioning here. 
And so John goes to the little angel, to the, to the mighty angel, and he, he takes the little book, he asks for it, he eats it, he internalizes it, means he's really studying it and getting into it, if you like. And it was as sweet as honey in his mouth. It was just beautiful. And then comes, after he has eaten it, the stomach becomes bitter. So it's a sweet bitter or a bittersweet experience. And John representing the people of the day, and we are looking 1798 and after, representing the people of the day who goes through the motions of this, accepting that time prophecy that we just spoke about, the culmination of the 2,300 years, which we haven't worked out yet, but we will, if not tonight, certainly next week. My stomach was bitter, that's what he said, a bitter experience. And then the mighty angel, Christ, says to him this. He says, you must prophesy again. You must prophesy again. So that means you have prophesied before. About what? Well, about the culmination of the 2,300 years. About the judgment, about the anti-typical Yom Kippur. That has been the prophecy. The, 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 the prophecy about a judgment. Surely, and we understand that. And uh, that was preached. And, and in fact, when we look at the time frame that you and I are dealing with, we have the correct chronology if we look at Earth's history, because that was the time when the Advent movement really took off. That message was, was proclaimed. And a date was set, but Jesus didn't come. And then there was a bitter disappointment. We'll talk more about that. Now, the message of the culmination of the 2,300 years, that is the message of the judgment, has to be proclaimed to many people, many nations, many tongues, and many kings or kingdoms, because that can be used uh, either one or the other way. After the bittersweet experience, you have to note this, after the bittersweet experience, there has to be a proclamation, again, a prophecy proclaimed again, worldwide, as we can see on this text. That means that God will raise a people who will do just that. And I put it to you, we can see our identity here. And uh, we'll talk more about that as well. The great Second Advent Movement. Beautiful. People are excited. Jesus was going to come again. And the man that did the preaching here, his name was William Miller. William Miller was a, uh, a very honest man. He, um, he was a farmer. He, um, he was a man of great principle. And uh, whilst he had no formal education, the man was intelligent. And he studied the Bible. At the age of 35, he... He felt, being a sinner, there was no hope for him. He was what we call a deist, someone who believes, yes, there is a God. Yes, he created everything. Yes, he put everything in motion. And then 
remained aloof from his creation. He could not find the consolation and the surety that he was longing for. And so he began to study the Bible most earnestly. And as he did do that, in the early 1800s, about 1812-13, he discovered the time prophecies of the book of Daniel. And he equated that with the book of Revelation as well. And he found particularly, particularly in the book of Daniel, because that's where the time prophecies are. And he calculated and he came to a conclusion that Jesus would return at a certain date. But the man was very modest. He kept it first to himself, but for nine, ten years it was pounding in his head. Go tell the world. And uh, he prayed about this most fervently. And in 1833, the Baptist Church of which he was a member uh, gave him his uh, preaching license and he became a licensed preacher and he proclaimed this message of the second advent and uh, it, um, it was indeed very uh, well received by many, many people, not all of course, the 2,300 year prophecy, the culmination, the judgment, the, the second coming of Christ. Hundreds of thousands of people actually took to this. Then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. He understood, Miller understood the cleansing of the sanctuary up to a point. He made a couple of mistakes and we'll talk about that. He did discover that that was the last date that you could set. It had to be after the 1840, the, the obviously, sometime after, and this is exactly what he arrived at. In fact, his computation came to 1844, and we will look at it very closely, very closely, how they derived at that. I want to mention that there were others who were actually also preaching and teaching the second coming of Christ. There was a man like Joseph Wolfe. If ever you want a story of a missionary that might impress you, can I suggest that you study the life of Joseph Wolfe, the missionary to the world. Oh, what a man. It is a very humbling experience to study his life and his ministry. The Bible did say many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall be increased. Well, this man also fulfilled that prophecy. He was preaching the second coming too. A very a couple of interesting things here. Robert Winter in England preached the same message. Manuel de la Cunza in South America, he was actually a Jesuit priest. He preached the same message. Uh, Bengal in Germany, Goshen in Switzerland. And there is something else that was very, very fascinating. The child preachers of Scandinavia. You know, the Lutheran doctrine had become the state religion of Scandinavia and Germany. And so you couldn't preach that which Luther had not taught. And so this Advent message was forbidden by the church and therefore forbidden by the state. But you could only be held responsible if you were of a certain age. 
I don't remember what the age was, but let's say it was 14 or 15 or 16 years of age. That means if you were under that age, you could freely preach what you wanted to. And it's fascinating that particularly amongst the poorer classes, there was a phenomenon that young children as, eight, as, as, as old as 8, 9, 10, stood up and would preach on the second coming, quoting the book of Daniel. A knowledge way beyond their capacity, way beyond their years. They interviewed the people that were witnessing these meetings and they said it was amazing. And you have a little picture here of a little boy on top of the table speaking to a house, a room full of people. That was, that was relatively common at th that time there in Scandinavia. What a phenomenon that was. Incredible story. And uh, the Advent movement was proclaimed. But there were two mistakes. First, notice, it was believed that the earth was the sanctuary. So when the sanctuary would be cleansed, it meant the earth would be cleansed. How? Well, by fire. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? True, for except that the earth is not the sanctuary. They had lost sight of the heavenly sanctuary. Now, when Moses was bidden by God to build a sanctuary so God could dwell amongst them, he had to build it according to a pattern. I think I talked about that last week, the top need, the pattern. There is in heaven a sanctuary. When Jesus went back to heaven, he commenced his ministry as our priest, our heavenly high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. We talked about that already. So what the 2,300 years pertained to was the ministry of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary. And that Miller didn't understand. And the others didn't understand that either. The Advent movement didn't see it that way. They had to learn the hard way. Cleansing by the means of the investigative judgment. God being justified to remove the records of the sins. His mercy absolutely justified. That is how the sanctuary was being cleansed. And it required the blood, the propitiation for the breaking of the law. And that is why one day that high priest on the tenth day of the seventh month had to go inside the most holy place and sprinkle some of the blood which was called the blood of the Lord's goat on seven times for that matter on the mercy seat. And uh, that was the payment for the law being broken. And then, and let me tell you, whilst I'm, I'm on the topic, and then he would go into the holy place, comes out of the most holy place, when he was down there, he would come to the holy place and he would put it on the four horns of the altar of incense, cleansing the records, cleansing the records. And in fact, he then would go, after having changed in this high priestly attire, he would then go to the courtyard where you had the altar of sacrifice and he would do the same with the blood of the Lord's goat. He would cleanse the four horns 
of the altar of sacrifice, removing the records of sin from there as well. And then there was another procedure which is, I'll talk about that in a minute, very, very important, very, very important. Before I do that, I want you to come with me back to the book of Daniel. I've entitled this Double Vision. Double Vision is terrible, isn't it? I mean, I don't know whether you ever had any of that. Terrible. Here is the thing. Why do they call it that? Well, I'm referring to the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel. I call it double vision because Daniel gets visions of what's happening on this earth in quite great detail. He gets the vision of what happens on the earth, but he also, notice, looks up in heaven and he sees what is happening there. And when you equate what is happening in a horizontal sphere on this earth, which is documented and recognizable in our history, you can equate it with the occurrences that happened in heaven and you get a chronology of what happens up there. Do you understand what I'm saying? A double vision, horizontal and a vision vertical, and you can uh, calibrate the two visions and it makes a whole lot of sense when you study that chapter and uh, relate it to known history and what the Bible teaches, particularly on what you and I are studying really here tonight, which is the Yom Kippur, the judgment. I saw, let's look at this, in my vision by night, and behold, there were four um, winds of heaven that were stirring up the great sea. Now, the great sea was always known as the Mediterranean Sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea. Now, you might know this story. So there's a lion, there is a bear, there is a, uh, a leopard, four heads, mind you, and a nondescript dragon type of uh, beast that has large iron teeth, obviously representing Rome, and the ten horns. That is what we see there. That is what Daniel saw. And he reports that each different one from the other. And these were the successive empires. Political and military upheavals are, of course, indicated here. And he was considering the horns. He's looking at the horns. You know that the Roman Empire broke up in ten, roughly ten horns, ten tribes, ten, ten nations. And there was another little horn, another one. It's only a little one that came up after the other ten, which is interesting, and uprooted three. So after the breakdown of the Western Roman Empire, 476 AD, afterwards, you get another little horn power that comes up in Daniel 7. And you should study that, uh, that particular chapter. And uh, uh, before whom three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. Now, historicy have recognized the demise of the Hurley, the Ostrogoths, and the Vandals. And, uh, of course, the little horn power, every reformer recognized this was the power of Rome, papal Rome. And there in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and uh, a mouth speaking pompous words, blasphemous words, would be another 
maybe even better translation. All the reformers, I stressed it, recognized the little horn to be papal Rome. And so now he gets a vision, instead of horizontal, he now looks up into heaven. And it says here, a fiery stream issued and came from before him. He's talking about God the Father seated on his throne. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand. Innumerable, innumerable. Notice, note the language. The court was seated. He sees a court setting. Notice. And the books were opened. The books were opened. The vision he gets is in 550 BC. And what he sees in an, is an investigative judgment. He sees, he sees the books, the records being opened. You understand that? The records. Nothing is hidden in this particular court setting. But it is a court setting and it is an investigative court setting. And notice, notice. I was watching in the night vision that he had, and behold, one like the Son of Man, one like the Son of Man, he says, uh, that's quite interesting, that's a very fascinating statement. Son of Man, kvar enosh in, in, in the Aramaic, uh, means an, a human being, a generic human being. So he sees a human being in heaven. Please listen carefully. Um, coming with the clouds of heaven. That is a divine attribute. He came to the Ancient of Days. He came to the Ancient of Days and, uh, and they brought him near before him. So this person, this human being, comes before the Father in heaven. He sees it in, as an event into the future. Isn't that amazing? This is 550 years before God became man, incarnate. Not only is it 550 years before the birth of Christ and his incarnation, the interesting thing is he sees him as a fully grown man in heaven, which means if you take into account that Daniel predicts the, the death of Christ, of the Messiah, and he does in chapter 9. He also proclaims, predicts the resurrection of the same entity, that is Jesus Christ. He predicts him to be human. He takes, therefore, his humanity with him back to heaven. And that's a fact. That is true in harmony with the whole of the Bible. So we have the incarnation, we have the ministry, we, of course, otherwise he couldn't claim the prerogative of being who he was and what he was entitled to do, and his resurrection, and, of course, his priestly function, because he's there on behalf of his people. Fascinating chapter, that seventh chapter of the book of Daniel. Now, note this statement. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. Notice, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is the one that shall not be destroyed. This is eternity. This is Christ's kingdom that will never disappear. 
That's amazing. That is what he writes. Clearly there is an investigative judgment as to who becomes a part of that kingdom. Do you understand that? It is decided there, right there and then. And that's why you should know this, because this affects you too. Your case will come up and it will be decided. Will you be part of that eternal kingdom? This is what Jesus said. And I like this. As Daniel describes that the one that walks in last. Now, I don't know about your understanding of a court case. When there is a court setting, who walks in last? Well, yes, indeed, the judge. The judge walks in last. He comes last. The one who comes here in the setting of Daniel chapter 7 is the judge. And Jesus confirms that. For the Father judges no one, but has committed what? All judgment to the Son. That is still future in the days of Jesus, but he will earn the right to be the judge. Do you see that? Can you see the importance that Jesus is the one who went for you to the cross? He is the perpetuation for your punishment, but he's also your judge. In fact, Paul Paul, decades later, he makes this statement because, as he speaks there at the Areopagus, Mars Hill, to the, to the, uh, to the Greek um, uh, philosophers, because he, God, has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, notice, by the man, well, Daniel saw a man, by the man whom he has ordained, and that is Jesus Christ. And he specifies that. He is given assurance, God has given assurance of this to all by raising him, Jesus Christ, from the dead. So in the days of Paul, it is still future, too. Still future. When we go to the uh, epistle of John, the first, first uh, letter. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, he says, we have an advocate with the Father. That is a great statement. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Notice, notice. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not just, oh, I love this, not just for ours only, but for the whole world. Jesus died. He was the propitiation for all of the sins in the world. That doesn't mean that everybody is going to be saved, but everybody and anybody can be saved. That is what he is saying. Here's the interesting thing. In Jewish law, the halakha, the judge becomes your advocate. If you brought in as an accused, the judge takes your case. But when two or more witnesses are so against you and so clear on the evidence against you, he must then become your judge and judge you and see to the executional part of the judgment, whatever it might be. But the judge would take your side uh, the, the Jewish law is very much based on mercy. Um, it's incredible. It's a, it's a worthy topic of, of, uh, of study, anyway. So Jesus is our judge. 
but he is also our advocate. Do you see that? When he takes our case and he defends us before the Father and he confesses us before billions of angels, you become part of that eternal kingdom. That is what the story is telling us. So now the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. You have a two-compartment little building which is representative of heaven or the sanctuary in heaven. The Tamid, the continual, the daily, remember. Then you have on the right side, you have the Kodesh HaKodeshim, that means the most holy place. Once a year only. On the Day of Atonement, when you have the cleansing of the sanctuary, you understand that it's bidden here in Leviticus 16, verse while reading, and I'll just make it shorter, but I still would counsel you to study Leviticus 16. And Aaron shall bring, because he was the high priest, the goat on whom the Lord's lot fell. They took two goats, and the lot would fall on the one, as the Lord's goat, and then obviously the other one becomes Azazel. I'll explain that in the tick. And offer it as a sin offering. So the Lord's goat is offered as a sin offering, but what is absent here, he does not place his hands on the head of the goat, transferring the sin. No such thing, because the blood of the Lord's goat is perfect. It is sinless. And therefore, the blood of the Lord's goat cleanses. Did you get that? And that becomes the instrument of the cleansing during the investigative judgment of the removal of the records of all forgiven sins that remain forgiven and the records are completely disappeared. Now, you had Azazel, you had the other goat who would have a red uh, cord around his horns. They used to do that. But the goat on which the lot fell of the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement, now notice, to make atonement for it and let it go as the scapegoat in the wilderness. Now you know what a scapegoat is. That is someone who is blamed. Can you imagine this? This is mind-boggling. Your sins that you committed... My sins that I committed. Let's talk about yours. How can you be sure that you are forgiven? Because you have confessed your sin and, and you know that the Bible says that God forgives and he delights in forgiveness. He does. But the record is still there. Well, there is a process and this is what the Day of Atonement is about. There is a process where the record is going to be completely disappeared. Because the scapegoat, Azazel, who really typifies Satan, Satan gets the blame for your sins. That's an amazing process. Because he's the one who instigates. And so this is rather an interesting development. To make atonement upon it, to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. Why in the wilderness? Well, when we come later on, in the other chapters, the closing chapters of the book of Revelation, it talks about the millennium. And we'll come back to this process here 
of the scapegoat being led into the wilderness where he will die. This is a prefiguration of the future of Satan himself. So he shall make atonement for the holy place, that's with the records of the sin burr, remember the altar of mediation. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the children of Israel, the records of their sins, and because of the, their transgressions of all their sins, and he shall lay, notice, both hands on the head of the live goat. All the sins confessed, forgiven, transferring from the holy place, when he comes to the holy place, to the courtyard, to the altar of sacrifice, from the altar of sacrifice, to the goat, Azazel, and he places all the forgiven sins on the head of the scapegoat. And that is how the records of your sin will disappear, because he will be taken, he confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and their transgressions concerning all their sins, confessed, forgiven, putting them on the head of the goat, send it away into the wilderness, notice, and, and by the hand of a suitable man, and this is the destiny of Azazel, the goat that is designated to be blamed for the sins, your sins. Amazing. The goat shall be bear on itself all the iniquities to an uninhabited land. And he shall release the goat in the wilderness where it died. So in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all. Now that, that Yom Kippur was, is of course a an, an, an ceremonial Sabbath day and a most significant one, most significant one. You had to afflict your souls. And what's the affliction? You say to yourself, have I confessed all my sins? Have my sins, all my sins, are they, have they gone for me? to the holy place, which will be cleansed if I stay faithful and submitted to him. This is what they used to afflict their souls for on the Day of Atonement. And it is fascinating that technically we are already actually living in that era of time in the anti-typical way. I'll come back to that next week more so. For on the day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean, meaning your records gone from all your sins from before the Lord. No more records. You've never sinned. Amazing. That's where we are today, technically speaking. It's a sobering thought. So the angel, he said to me, you must prophesy again to many people, nations, tongues, and kings worldwide. That is our commission, what we just talked about today. That is our commission. And so the 11th chapter, the first two verses are actually part of chapter 10. Then I was giving a measuring rod. A measuring rod means to examine. Notice, note, note the language, it's very helpful. And, and I was told, rise, measure the temple of God. Now hold it for a minute, the temple of God. At the time of writing, it's 95 AD. 
The temple has already been destroyed for 25 years. So it's not the temple in Jerusalem. It can only be the temple in heaven, built not by the hands of man. And so, and the altar, the altar of intercession and incense. And those who worship there, well, those who worship in spirit there, those who worship there are here on this planet, but they worship the God, the one that is in the sanctuary on their behalf. That is Jesus Christ. And so those who worship there, but do not, notice, do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out, for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city, that's God's people, for 42 months. And that brings you again to that persecution of 1260 days. The year day principle applies. And it's an amazing thing how often that comes up in both the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. The judgment that is happening in heaven now, the one that we talked about, that he saw in chapter 7, Daniel, the one that actually John really is referring to, is the judgment of the people of God. Those who are not in Christ, never have accepted God, willfully de denied and neglected him. They're on the outside. They're the Gentiles. They have not come to him. But those of us who have come to him, have confessed Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are being dealt with in the courts of heaven, in the pre-advent before Jesus returns, in the pre-advent investigative judgment. That is how God has ordained it, and that is what is happening today. And so, in closing, you would want to make sure, you would want to make sure, that Jesus takes your case in heaven. You confess all your sins and then you trust him that one day he will take your case in front of billions of angels, in front of his father. He will take your case and he will mention you as being his. You belong to him. And that should be the desire, the ambition, and the future of any one of us. And so, can I invite you just to bow your head. Heavenly Father, as we thank you for your word, the assurances, and the information that you give us, you, you tell us what will happen. I thank you for, Lord, we thank you for telling us how we are going to be saved. Lord, help us to be willing to study and stay with the study so we can understand your great love and the wonderful provisions that you have made for us. Thank you for Jesus. There is no greater gift. Thank you for the word. It's beautiful. And thank you for loving us. Bless us now. Keep us safe. And please bring us together again for worship and study. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Revelation Ancient Prophecy with Pastor Baron Neustraten, brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio. For more information on this series, 
visit waitarachurch.org.au. This is Fountain View Academy with the song The Judgment Has Set.
Let's listen to William Ackland as he shares a psalm from his paraphrase of the Bible called The Gift. Psalm 5 is today's reading and it is a psalm of David and is directed to the choir director and is a prayer for guidance. Please listen to what I say, O Lord. Consider my heartfelt cries. Take note of the tone of my voice, my King and my God, for I pray only to you. I will pray to you in the morning, dear Lord, when I first awake, my thoughts will be only of you, and I will look to heaven and open my heart to you. You are not like the heathen gods who take delight in wickedness. Evil shall not exist near you. The proud will be brought low before you, for you hate all those who indulge in iniquity. All those whose lives are a lie shall be destroyed, for the Lord detests those who shed blood and live deceitfully. My desire is to come into your house and be in your divine presence. I will worship you because I adore you and want to be in your holy temple. Keep me in your righteous way, for my enemies would seek to draw me from you. May your way always be dear to me. There is nothing worthy in those who hate you. What comes out of the hearts leads to death. When they speak, it is like an open tomb, flattering as they do for no good purpose. Pronounce their guilt, O God. May their conspiracies turn upon themselves. Let them perish, being trapped in their wickedness, for they continually reject you. But for those who put their trust in you, may they rejoice. May the praise of God ever be on their lips, because you protect them. May those who love to hear your name find the highest joy in you. For you, O Lord, will shower favours on the righteous, and you will surround them with your divine protection. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.